Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Well, welcome to the video. I'm really glad that you're here. My name is Aaron. So this goes, good morning. All right, that was beautiful. Uh, we'll get into the message in just a minute here. I just want to tell you about something quickly. We do... Um, a bunch of things in the life of our church uh, to help people in our community. And uh, by and large, like, we don't do a great job of telling you what we do and what you do. And so we're going to try to work on that this year. Each month, we're going to highlight a different ministry or ministry partner that we have in our church. And you may have noticed on the way in for the month of January, we're focusing on Kicks for Kids, uh, which is a ministry we launched a number of years ago. And basically, we have a lot of connections with schools and um, uh, with Isaiah 117 house and other connections as well with people or we come across kids who just don't have adequate footwear for one reason or another. And it's, it's even here, even here, it's a surprisingly huge need. So what we do is we keep um, shoes in every size for boys and girls all the time so that all they have to do, and a bunch of people call us to do this several times a week, we get a call, and then immediately we go and deliver those shoes to that kid. We, they're, they're not, there's no show made of it. They just suddenly have shoes, okay? So there's nothing embarrassing. We're just uh, providing for kids. And the way that works, actually, is um, Kicks for Kids is set up. Right now it's set up in the lobby, but usually as you exit the sanctuary, it's on your immediate right in that little kid's hallway there. And the way it works is really simple. You guys walk through that hallway and go, oh, we need a, a women's or a girl's seven and a boy's nine, and I'm going to keep my eyes open. And uh, what people do is they see the empty spots. They come the next Sunday. Many of you have done it and just fill in the spots with extra shoes um, so that we're always ready to respond to the need. And we've always been able to respond to the need every single time. So Thank you for doing that, that you have been doing that for years. And then heads up, if you didn't know we do that, maybe you can participate and be a part of helping provide schools uh, for kids in schools. And then also, like I said, the Isaiah 117 house. It's just a beautiful thing. If you have any questions about that, um, you can talk to Natasha, our community and care pastor, uh, out in uh, the lobby after the service. Cool. Let me take a minute to pray, and we will we'll jump right in. King Jesus, uh, it's so good to be here with you, with your people I ask that you just meet with us right now. Lord, for us in the room, for the folks online, just would you just attune our hearts to hear from you, to respond to you. And whatever you have for us, we don't want to miss it. So I ask you, Lord, would you let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, in just a minute, I'll, I'll read you from Jeremiah chapter 9 if you want to jump ahead and find that. Just uh, one more thing I want to put in front of you. Uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, I hope you take time to celebrate that every year. Um, and then there's something I, I, uh, I push you guys, and I do. It's a little bit more than a nudge. I push you guys to do every year at this time, uh, which is to read Martin Luther King Jr.'s work, um, Letter from a Birmingham Jail. It is literally a letter that he wrote from a jail in Birmingham, and uh, it's brilliant. It is concise. It's just a few pages long. It won't take you long to read it, um, but it's this incredibly kind and yet direct and, and challenging word from Dr. King to majority white churches 
that's us, majority white churches and majority white leaders. And what he said at that particular moment was just hyper relevant to the moment in which um, that, that particular moment, just hyper relevant. I also want to point out, though, every word of what he said is now hyper relevant to this particular culture moment as well. Every bit of it. Um, so just a brilliant man, incredible leader, a great way to uh, remember and honor him is to remember his words and what he stood for, and that's just a great way to do it. So in our sermon notes, there's a link. You can click on it, and it will take you to that, and if you don't have that, which you should get, get the app, but if you don't, it's a Google search away. It's, uh, it's online for free, letter from a Birmingham jail. I hope you'll take time to read it. It's absolutely brilliant. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23, 4, 5. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. Those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I'm the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things, I, the Lord, have spoken. He goes, if you want to boast in something, if you want to find an identity in something, may, let it be that you're my children and know as my children that I care about unfailing love being demonstrated to the world around me, and I care about righteousness, and I care about justice. These are the foundations of my throne. That should be sort of one of those true north centering moments. And then he adds this verse 5 very interestingly, poignantly. A time is coming, says the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised in body but not in spirit. I know it's sort of a strange sentence, but what he's saying is there's a time when I'm going to separate the people who um, have had a genuine, sincere uh, conversion to life with Jesus away from those who are just doing the religious externalities and go, going through and jumping through religious hoops, but in the end they're not been truly transformed in spirit. All right, so with that in mind, let's move forward. Uh, this is part two of two, just a little mini-series called Nickajack. Um, this series is a little bit different from the norm. I'm focusing on history of East Tennessee, strangely enough, and, and particularly um, the history uh, around the 1860s leading up to the Civil War and what was going on around here at that time. So a little bit, little bit different. Um, last week, we talked about a weird piece of Tennessee history um, where in the run-up to the Civil War, Tennessee... Uh, seceded from the Union and joined the Confederacy, but the great majority of people in East Tennessee, including more than 80% of people here in Blount County, did not want to uh, secede from the Union. They were, in fact, loyal to the Union. Um, and as a result, when Tennessee seceded from the Union, East Tennessee seceded from Tennessee and created, along with some folks from Alabama, the state of Nickajack, which was loyal to the Union. It was, as we said last week, a rebellion against the rebellion. Now, I just want to acknowledge that's kind of a, an obscure historical footnote. And uh, the, the state of Nickajack was never fully recognized, and, and the, way the, the war raged on anyway. And so maybe it's just a piece of trivia. You know, maybe it's nothing. Um, but for what it's worth, I am, I'm just convinced that it's, it's something. It's at least, it's at least something. There's a, a pretty unmistakable theme in scripture and at the risk of stating it way too simply, the theme is that places matter to God. Places, as in geography, as in a piece of land, it matters to God. 
Um, there's a reason why any good study Bible has a bunch of maps in the back of it. It's because the places where that stuff went down really matters. The geography matters. And when you read the Bible, you, you quickly realize, oh, Israel's not just another nation, right? You figure that out quick. And, and Mount Sinai is just not some mountain. And, and the Jordan River isn't just another body of water, and neither is the Red Sea. And on and we could go. Uh, Jerusalem and Babylon are more than just ancient urban centers. There's a lot that's being said. Sometimes God marks out a place, a spot, a piece of land where he intends to do something that, something that really matters, something really important. So anyway, that part of it I think is clear enough and direct enough. Now, though, here comes the leap, and I, I am about to take a leap, okay? And by the way, I certainly don't know what I'm about to say. I, I don't know that it, it's, it's true. Uh, if you disagree with me, I will not try to convince you otherwise. Fair enough. Um, but I think East Tennessee is a spot that has been marked out by God to play, I mean, a small but still a significant role in God's redemptive plan. I, I think it's a work that he began a long time ago and a work that he is eager to get back on track. And again, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes this happens. Some, sometimes people just think about stuff for way too long and they start seeing things that aren't really there. And maybe that's all I've done here, for sure. Maybe so. I'll just be really honest. You can, you can search your Bibles uh, for East Tennessee and you're not going to find it anywhere in there. All right, and if you do have one with maps, you can look through the maps and try to find the Appalachian Mountains, and you're not going to find them anywhere there either. So with all that in mind, let me be very clear, no new doctrines or new theologies like that are going, nothing like that at all is going on here. Instead, though, um, just a bit of history about where you live and a couple of just open-ended thoughts about what that might mean, because I, I think it means something. Um, the state of Nickajack was formed because uh, people in East Tennessee just were not okay with the margins aside and thrown away like trash. That's why, that's why it happened. And it's interesting to imagine, like, why, 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 why might that have happened here? Why was this such uh, an exceptional place as compared to what was happening geograph geographically all around, of it, all around us? Now, why would that be? And, and I, I don't know this also, but I think maybe that it's, it could be at least in part because back then in the 1860s, 1850s, and before, folks around here um, were poor by and large and oppressed too, regardless of their race. Um, this area was mostly settled by the Scots and the Irish. Um, and both here in the U.S. and in the U.K. at the time, um, the Scots and the Irish were considered at best to be poor white trash, at best. And although, I want to be very careful when I say this, hear me, uh, what people of color have faced in this country is entirely and horrifically unique. I, I'm not, okay, I don't want to draw any false parallels here. But at that point in American history, the Scotch-Irish were facing a kind of ridicule that, again, certainly entirely different in magnitude but a kind of ridicule that maybe on some level maybe rhymed with what black people were facing. And so maybe it's because on some small level, people here could relate. People on some level could be like, I know what it's like to be looked at with suspicion rather than trust. 
I know what it's like to be thought of as disposable. We're not going to be a part of perpetuating that in even like vastly more horrific forms. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's because, I'd love to think this, maybe it's because the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians had done such an incredible job evangelizing this area. And so the gospel was, was known and widely accepted here at that time. And maybe just life with Jesus had begun to infiltrate the culture in such a way that something as horrific as slavery couldn't even be imagined or conceived of as something that would be okay. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, if, if I'm reading the history right, if ever there was a beacon of justice and reconciliation in the southeast, guys, believe it or not, it was Blunt County, Tennessee. At least, <laughs> at least for a while. At least for a while. Now, look, I know that's a, that's a big claim, but let me just take a few minutes here and tell you where I'm coming from on that. And um, I think it starts with Friendsville, actually. Um, Friendsville is called Friendsville because it was started uh, by a bunch of Quakers. And Quakers um, is another name for the Society of Friends. So if you were going to start a town as the Society of Friends, you might call it Friendsville, okay? And they did. It's a bunch of awesome Quakers over there. Um, by the way, just sort of an, uh, an aside here, uh, John Wimber, who was the founder of the vineyard, um, actually found life with Jesus while, as the story goes, chain-smoking his way through a Quaker-led Bible study. Um, and so as a result, his early formation was happening with the Quakers. And as a result, some of our distinct vineyard values came from the Quakers. For example, do you, do you know why the Quakers are called Quakers? It's because when they gathered for worship, they would for long stretches, sometimes for hours, simply be still and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And when the Holy Spirit would come in power, sometimes they would quake. And because of that, Quakers, that's, that's why. Turns out it has nothing to do with oatmeal or anything. It's, <laughs> it's not that. The vineyard value of waiting on the Holy Spirit, it's, it's kind of a Quaker value. Another Quaker value is the peaceful but unyielding opposition to slavery in every form. I'm going to read you something awful. In 1857, the Supreme Court of the United States in the Dred Scott decision stated this, and I will quote it, and I just, before I do, I just, I cannot believe that a, a group of people agreed together. This is a good thing. Let's put our stamp of approval on these words, but it happened, and I'll quote it, a person of African descent, whether emancipated or free, has no right which a white man is bound to respect. Our Supreme Court was like, yep, that's true. Let's put that in the law. It's unimaginable. So that was in 1857. Here's the thing. More than 100 years before that, in 1754, the Philadelphia yearly meeting of the Religious Society of Friends, or the Quakers, told its members this, to live in ease and plenty by the toil of those whom violence and cruelty have put in our power is neither consistent with Christianity nor common justice. So what does that mean? That means that while some denominations were debating the issue of slavery, the Quakers had long settled that issue more than 100 years before. 
And so while churches uh, all over the South and beyond were squabbling over where they're going to land on this issue, the Quakers were already positioned to get to work doing justice and helping people, like with, for example, the Underground Railroad. Um, You probably know what the Underground Railroad is, but just in case it was a, a secret network of safe houses and hiding places where the enslaved could find a path to freedom, okay? Um, And of course, the Underground Railroad went right through Friendsville. In 1862, so this would be in the midst of the Civil War, William Hackney, he was a Quaker, he realized that he had a way that he could help with the Underground Railroad. He owned uh, what's now called Cujo's Cave, which was right across the street from the Quaker Meeting House, and he owned that land there. And the opening to the cave was very small and and covered by really thick overgrowth, but inside the cave, it opened up big and could accommodate up to 50 people at once. And he goes, this is an opportunity, and here's what they did. Through the the radical generosity of essentially the whole town of Friendsville, Supplies and food were always available in that cave, and that helped, it's amazing, more than 2,000 men, women, and children who came through and found respite and safety in Cujo's cave on their way to freedom. It's remarkable. Um, But it wasn't just Friendsville. All of Blount County was known as a place where slavery was reviled as just pure evil. Um, many of Maryville's first and greatest leaders fiercely and adamantly opposed slavery. Um, this name might ring a bell, Reverend Dr. Isaac Anderson. He was a brilliant theologian and Bible teacher, a heck of a preacher as well. And he, he came and was serving the New Providence Presbyterian Church here in Blount County beginning in 1812, so a very long time ago. Um, he also founded uh, what was then known as the Southern and Western Theological Seminary. Does anybody know what it's called today? Maryville College. Yeah. So he founded Maryville College way back when. Um, and he was an adamant and ruthless and vocal uh, opponent of slavery in every form long before the war. And he used his platform and his influence in order to do so. So he opposed it. He, he encouraged others, taught others why, in fact, it was purely evil. And by the way, he was often found on the steps of the Maryville Courthouse buying with his own money the freedom of slaves for the sole purpose of setting them free. If you're, if you're unclear about what constitutes a hero in this world, maybe you could consider Dr. Reverend Isaac Anderson for that. Uh, By contrast, there was a Dr. Samuel Pride, and and I say by contrast because um, his story doesn't work out quite as well, but there is a part of me, I admit, who finds some small measure of perverse glee in what happened to Dr. Samuel Pride, so I will tell you his story. He was uh, born in Knoxville. Um, He was a physician, but he was raised and and spent most of his life here in Maryville. In fact, he had a very large mansion um, that is right now where the new city, uh, the new city building is at the corner of Broadway and 321, right where that, that's where his mansion uh, was. And in that mansion, he enslaved lots of people, lots. He had a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of influence. He was the most adamant secessionist in the area and was known to be as such. But then, in the lead up to the Civil War, the political line started to be drawn, and he looked around and thought, I can't stay here. 
It's like, if I'm going to be a radical secessionist, if I'm going to enslave people, then, and I want to have any sort of power or influence or voice, and he, he did, and he wanted to have that. He was politically motivated. He was the first mayor of, of Maryville, by the way, 1850. Our very first mayor, mayor was Dr. Samuel Pride. But he looks around in the 1860s and goes, if I'm going to live a life like this, i got to get out of here. And he said as much. He moved to Texas to a place where he might actually have a future and a voice as a secessionist. And then... <clears throat> And then there's William B. Scott. I, I first read about William B. Scott about a decade ago, and I'm still stunned by his story. Okay. So are you listening to me right now? Are you sitting down? I see that you are, yes. William Bennett Scott was a black man born free in Virginia. Uh, he ended up uh, in Friendsville. He ran a leather shop in Friendsville. And leather crafting is actually my personal hobby. So, like, he's already, like, warming my heart. <laughs> I already love this guy. Um, and then he ended up moving to Nashville. And there's a brilliant man. And there he came to be. He was the first black man to ever own and operate a newspaper. Um, it was called The Colored Tennessean. But then after doing that for a while, again, as we were approaching the Civil War, he starts looking around and realizes, man, it's tough sledding to be a person of color in central Tennessee. And he realized and said as much, I, I got to get back to Blount County. Like it's not, I, I have to go back to a place where I am safe and received. And so he thought, I've got to go back to Blount County. And he did. He moved back to Blount County. He ran what was Maryville's only newspaper for 10 years. It's called the Maryville Republican. And then in 1869, are you listening to me? In 1869, so let's place it, this would be four years after the Civil War ended. In 1869, William Bennett Scott, a black man, was elected the mayor of Maryville. Guys, he was elected the mayor. Of, in 1869, it was the second ever elected mayor at, anywhere, at any point in the history of the United States. The first was in a little town of Louis, in Louisiana where there was 70% black. The second one was in Maryville, a town that was 90% white. Guys, we had a black mayor in 1869. 1869. Look what I did. <laughs> Guys, something was happening here. Something unique. Something exceptional. Something beautiful. It's happening here. It was a work of God. It was on this soil. People who were rejected everywhere else knew to come here. And people who wanted to oppress others knew that they didn't have a voice here. It was a city on a hill. It was a light in the darkness. Was Maryville perfect? Absolutely not. I'm sure you could find a, a long list of absolutely horrible things that were happening at that time. I, I'm not saying that. But undoubtedly, it was different here. 
There was a rebellion against the rebellion here. If you were a minority, if you were oppressed, if you needed a safe haven where you could receive welcome and hospitality without judgment and just receive the unfailing love of Christ in the name of Christ, this was not a place to go. This was the place to go. Anywhere in the southeast, this was the place to go, and people knew it. Now, if we can try to stay anchored in reality here, I'll say this. We clearly do not still have that reputation anymore. We just don't. There are a lot of beautiful things that happen in this county. I don't want to dismiss that at all. But we're not that place anymore. I don't I don't know when it changed or why it changed or how it changed, but it, it changed. And, and look, maybe it, was just, maybe it was just a moment in time, you know, like this quick, quickly fleeting dynamic in the midst of, you know, a constantly changing world, and it came and it went, and that's all it was. But I'm convinced, and again, I'll say it again, I don't have a verse for it, so you can take it or leave it. But I'm convinced that this was more than that. That this place, our, our home, was marked by God as a place of reconciliation, of welcome, of refuge. This incredible thing, uh, this overlooked thing that happened in the Old Testament, um, when God's people moved into the promised land, God insisted that they marked out uh, what were called cities of refuge, or sanctuary cities, there were, there were six of them that were, that were set aside where God planted a flag and they said, in this place, people who are seeking justice, they can go there and they'll be safe until they find justice. Cities of refuge. God planted a flag and said, if you need refuge, you go here. And this was regardless of race or ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, scripture is clear about that. This is a place where the oppressed find justice. And he planted those flags throughout the nation of Israel. And I think God has planted a similar flag in Blount County. I think it's part of the redemptive history of where we live. And look, even if I'm just completely wrong about that, and I might be, the fact remains the home of every Christian should wave that flag. Amen? I got plenty of verses for that. I got lots of verses for that. There's absolutely no question whatsoever about whether or not God's people should be doing the work of justice, fighting for the oppressed, for the marginalized, seeking reconciliation wherever, the, wherever we go. This is the ministry that we have been given as the people of God. Um, Isaiah 117, uh, I love this verse. Uh, by the way, uh, I mentioned earlier that we partner with the Isaiah 117 house. Such a cool ministry there to... Uh, people, orphans moving into transition, just difficult times, and, and they come and, and rally around and serve. It's a beautiful thing. Anyway, um, this Wednesday is January 17th, 117, so they've made it Isaiah 117 day. Um, and so I want to encourage you on Wednesday to spend some time praying for the Isaiah 117 house, of course, and I would encourage you to spend some time reading Isaiah 117. You know what? It's pretty short and wonderful. I would encourage you to—you got a few minutes— Take a few minutes and, and memorize Isaiah 117, okay? 
we'll all still be probably by then just huddling for warmth somewhere because of the coming snow, cop- snow apocalypse, okay? So it's coming anyway, so you should have time on your hand. Uh, it says this, <clears throat> learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. You know, the problem with the Bible is just so unclear. You know, I was like, what does it mean? What is it saying to us? Sometimes it's just so clear. Sometimes it just comes right out and goes, let me bottom line it for you. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. I want to I wanna close by going back to William Hackney, the, uh, the Quaker over in Friendsville who helped thousands of enslaved people find freedom through the underground rail. Friendsville is just right over there. We used to meet in Friendsville, by the way. We were the Maryville Vineyard meeting in Friendsville for like six years. Um, I want to I highlight William Hackney, uh, who helped so much with Cujo's Cave and the Underground Railroad, because I think his motives were clearly like unimpeachable. I know people do things who are like, is that altruistic or not? Or was it somehow in some way self-seeking? And if you kind of have a cynical eye towards these things, I understand that. It's the world we live in. I get it. I, I can't imagine how his motives could have been anything but pure in this. First of all, we default to, well, maybe there was some sort of financial motivation. I, clearly, he was only hurt financially <laughs> by giving and sacrificing and doing all the work and effort um, in order to organize and sustain all to do this such public work in such a private way, it was a ton of work, and clearly he only sacrificed and lost financially, only hurt him financially. It was clearly what he did there a huge risk, a danger to him, a danger to his entire family. I think that's that's obvious, and I think we can run past that and go, oh yeah, he did something dangerous, and like not realize, guys, this was in the middle of the civil war and the civil war was happening all around him. Literally the fields around here stained with blood. People were dying. It wasn't child's play. And his entire family was at genuine risk. The people he loved, his entire church at genuine risk. Let me be clear about this for William Hackney. It certainly was not about politics. I know that can be a driver for two as well. And you might say, well, how can you be so sure? Here's how I can be so sure. In 1762, which is 100 years before he started working on the Underground Railroad, there was a yearly gathering of Quakers. That was the one in Philadelphia we talked about. It turns out they did it yearly. Yearly gathering of Quakers, and they decided in 1762 no Quaker would hold public office. No Quaker was allowed to campaign for, campaign for others to hold public office. And they, they weren't even allowed to vote as Quakers. Now, You can feel however you want to feel about that particular set of decisions, but it makes it plenty clear for us, for William Hackney, this was not about politics. This is not about politics. And and while we're here, by extension, we need to make sure that our adherence to clear biblical teachings on justice isn't about politics either. Let me just tell you something real quick. Just just off to the side here. Don't worry. We're all going to be fine. But there's this thing that happens. The political left and the political right um, have each sort of taken hold of and claimed as their own different aspects of biblical justice. Okay? And so as a follower of Christ, if 
you are in any way more inclined to adhere to certain biblical teachings about doing justice for the oppressed and less inclined to adhere to other ones based on your political party and the types of biblical justice that your political party tends to celebrate, so you tend to do more of one and perhaps even look side-eyed at the other, I would just like to say to you, lovingly, you've lost the plot. You've forgotten who sits on the absolute throne of your life. It certainly is not politics. Around here we call that the tail wagging the dog. That's, that's what that is. So look, don't misunderstand me. You can certainly hold your political opinions and your positions great. You can hold them. You can hold them strongly. You can believe strongly. Absolutely. But they must never cloud your understanding of the Bible. You missed it. I'm, let's try again. Hold your political opinions. Hold them strongly. That's fine. They must never, ever take precedent over Scripture. That's way better. Guys, I just don't want us to lose the picture here. Guys, American politics is, at best, a flea on the back of the Lion of Judah. In the end, it's nothing. It's nothing in the end. So this ain't about politics for me. It shouldn't be for you. It absolutely wasn't for William Hackney. And to be clear, it wasn't about recognition either. So this wasn't about lots of people knowing what a great guy William Hackney was. Because here's what happened. After all this stuff went down, the word got out, and people started coming to William Hackney. And he was offered accolades and rewards and recognitions and positions in the government. He was on. All this stuff was, was given to him, and he refused all of it. So I don't want any of it. So what about that? So what was it? And the more I think about it, I, just, there's, I only see one option. It was just because he was a fully committed Jesus follower. And he looked around at all the injustice around him and thought, there's absolutely no way I can just turn a blind eye and do nothing when I have the capacity to do something. So what did Hackney do? I just want us to think about it real quickly. I, I, I think it's, to put it in the simplest way, what did he do? He looked around and recognized a need. And then he recognized that there was something he personally could do about it. So, so he opened his eyes. We have a real tendency when we see people who are hurting or marginalized, when they're pushed to the fringe for whatever reason, be it race or economic status, or just, you know, they're, they're looked at as awful people, whatever it might be. People get pushed away for whatever reason. We have a tendency to just kind of look the other way, eyes forward, keep marching. To be a follower of Jesus is to refuse to look away. To lean toward and not away people who are oppressed for whatever reason that might be. And of course, there's a longer list than I could ever make. But William Hackney looked around and said, okay, there's a need. There are people who are running for their freedom. They need safe haven. They need supplies. They need to be taken care of. They need hospitality on their way to freedom. And he looked around, well, what do I have? Like, well, I run a farm. And, and I have this cave that opens up and it's really well hidden. And there's a there's a freshwater spring that runs right by it. I got something I can do. And so we did it, regardless of what it cost. We could do the same thing with the other people we've looked at, with Reverend Dr. Isaac Anderson. What did he do? He said, well, I have a platform as a pastor. I'm going to use it to teach about justice. 
And he was like, I'm an educator and I'm a leader, so I'm going to start a seminary to train other people to teach about the same, the good news, the unfailing love of Jesus Christ. And then when all that looked around, he thought, you know what, I've still got some money in my pocket. I'm going to the courthouse steps to buy freedom for people. He looked around and said, that's, that's what I can do. That's the need, and here's how, how I can respond. Going back to last week, my great-great-great-great-grandma Lucy, a black man knocks on her door in the middle of the night and says, I need help delivering my wife's child. She's struggling in labor. And she goes, I'm a midwife. I'm going to go, regardless of what might come, regardless of the backlash, and it certainly did come, I'm, I'm going to do, this is what I can do. This is the need, and this is how I can respond. And that plain and simple is what I want to ask all of us to do right now. Uh, the band's going to come on up, and they're going to continue leading us in worship. I just want us to take a moment now. I just, whatever posture works best for you, but let's take a moment to pray. And specifically, I just want to ask for your like unbending, like laser focus in this moment. And, and I really believe the Holy Spirit will meet with us as we seek Him with sincerity right now. But I want to ask you to begin to, to just search your own mind, your own relationships, your circles of influence, the connections that you have in your life, the people you know, the people you know really well, maybe not so well. And just any place you have access, would you just, in your own mind's eye, and I really believe the Holy Spirit's going to join you in this and highlight things for you along the way. Would you just... Would you acknowledge the people in your life now who are just pushed to the side? Maybe it's because of race. Maybe it's because of their immigration status. Maybe it's because of their financial situation. Maybe it's because of a personality that was shaped largely, I would assume, by hurt that just makes them tough to be around as a result they, they tend to get isolated maybe they're looked at as, as sinners or just, just not good and as a result people tend to shy away as a result doors tend to close rather than open for them there are people in your life Lord, I ask that you would just help us to see those people, to refuse to look away. And Lord, would you just move in our minds now, highlight people for us. Maybe it's a subset of people or a group, people at work, people at school. And so we see a need. And then we just ask you, Lord, what, what would you have us to do? We're yours. We're loose change in your pocket, eager to be spent however you see fit. God, what would you have us do? You said righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. You said that you lean in and not away to those who are ostracized. If we're your people, we do the same. you highlight those people for us? Would you begin to show us, here's what you have. And it might be you've got some extra money that you can give. It might be, um, very likely, it will be 
you have a welcome that you can extend. You have friendship that you can offer. You have hospitality. You have a platform that you can share. Whatever it is, Lord, show us what we have. What do we have? Through our own resources or the resources of the Spirit of God within us to respond to those needs.